live, interactive, and here to assist you if you need help. Dealing with addiction, mental health challenges, and more. This is Road to Recovery with your host, Yona Bud, only on 640 Toronto. And welcome to the show. This is Yona Bud here. Are you on the Road to Recovery? We're in the studio with Bilal and Natasha and myself. And the show was produced by our new friend, Heather. She kind of took over for Corey because Corey's doing other stuff. We wish him well. Still involved in the, sh- in the, in the station, still my buddy, but working on some other stuff. And uh, hard to get people that want to play with me late at night. But I got the, I got the A-team for sure. And uh, I think we always have, even uh, in the early days. So really happy to be here. If you're not sure what we're doing, this is a show that about people helping people and conversations we can have with one another. It is an absolutely interactive opportunity. And the, we, the way that works for you is 416-870-6400. That's how you phone me, 888-225-8255 if you're not in that 416 zone. Or you can text if you feel like it, 647-488-0086. And I always want to give a quick shout-out to my good friend Dennis, who I know is listening out there. And, uh, Dennis, we're uh, thinking about you tonight. Hope you're feeling good and having a, a good evening. It's going to be a great show for you and for everybody. Very busy, lots of guests, all kinds of stuff going on. You know, speaking of stuff going on, there's my big segue, right? After two years, there's really no going back to the beginning of the world before the pandemic. Really? I mean, our lives have changed in like such significant ways. The world's changed around us, right? Things like the murder of George Floyd prompted a complete overdue reckoning of racial inequality. Um, you know, it's for the first time people actually stood up as a nation and that did something about it, maybe as a world. Um, certainly Canadians were supporting all of the same types of activities um, to find racial uh, equality in, in this country. Um, but it, the UN's panel on climate change released reports within the most recent, using recent language that's so urgent you know, that's, they've seen things, climate emergency has to be addressed. We're seeing that in the last couple of years. Things like heat domes in BC, like whoever saw those. Raging fires in California, well, they've been, I think, something we've been seeing for a long time. Not that it's a good thing or a bad thing, but they've been around. Some really nutso stuff, though, right? President of the United States decided that he may or may not leave office, even though according to the polls and according to the, 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 um, the uh, election results, he was uh, defeated. And then, of course, we're seeing in today's times some of the most inhumane activity we could ever see in this world as it relates to Russia's uh, unprovoked, uh, unjustified war on the Ukraine and their people. But for two years, the world's changed in a lot of ways. How have you changed? What difference has it made for you? How are you any different, right? What did we learn from it? Did it shift our perspective on what an essential worker looks like? Does it mean something different when you get on an elevator with someone and you're looking at him without a mask on, He's not, he or she is not wearing, or they are not wearing a mask, and you're wondering, what if he sneezes, or what if they cough, or what if she says something, and I don't like it. I, I mean, I was kind of weirded out with small elevators and lots of numbers, lots of people on them at the same time in terms of downtown Toronto and some of those office buildings and such. But, you know, now it's different. Like, I'll pass on an elevator if someone that's in it doesn't have a mask on because, you know, pandemic or not, I don't want the flu or a cold. And it seems like one of the things that's changed for me is this whole masking concept. And, of course, I was always washing my hands because I have OCD and I don't like to touch things that other people touch. And, you know, I never really was a banister guy or a railing guy or a buttons in the elevator kind of guy. I didn't really touch a lot of stuff. So washing my hands has always kind of been a thing. But, you know, more so now, I carry more things in my pockets to do that with. And certainly having a mask on, 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 you know, on the ready or at the ready, I think is better English. 
So back to normal in a world that we don't, where we don't work every day to acknowledge and overcome some injustices and inequality or change in our play, our actions. That we, we don't want to go back to normal, my friends. There isn't going back to normal. And I think that's where the springboard of this first conversation needs to come from. This is what we need to talk about right now. A lot of people are, are, are creating tremendous anxiety for themselves by looking for something to happen in the future tomorrow that resembles what the world looked like two years ago. And I'm here to tell you, as an experienced therapist and someone with a great deal of, of, of years of experience, decades, many of them, and I can tell you there's no going backwards, man. There's just, I've tried it every which way but loose. There's just no going backwards. There's no way to find yourself back in 2019, 2018. Can't find ourselves back there, and, and nor, nor do we really want to. Because I believe the world's a little bit of a better place today than it was before this mess started. And I like to think that maybe I'm a little bit better person today than I was before this mess started. Maybe I'm a little more understanding. Maybe I'm a little more compassionate. Maybe I'm a little more willing to understand how others do things in a way that maybe I don't agree with. Right? People get to make choices and decisions. And clearly, they don't have to be the same as mine. We, we can't, you know, we, we need to grieve what we've lost in terms of the millions of lives and the expectation of stability that one would think, you know, it's the old days where you, you know, one would say if you worked for the phone company, you had a job for life. And when you retired, you had millions of dollars. <clears throat> There's not a lot of those companies anymore that can do that. We need to learn from everything that the last two years has taught us. In particular, we need to look at our society and how we have changed as people. You know, according to the 12 key areas of focus, according to the World Health Organization's review of the last couple of years, they focused on air quality, therapeutics, things like, you know, virus uh, prevention and, and different kinds of, of uh, vaccines and such. Testing and surveillance, way to, ways to keep track of a society uh, ahead of it being stuck in the middle of a pandemic or epidemic. Testing animals more, seeing what the, what the, what the field animals are carrying around, testing the water better. Monitoring pathogens in the, in the environment, tracking emerging variants around the world, assess, you know, assessing population immunity related to respiratory viruses, tracking hospitalizations in a different world way, long COVID, understanding the concept of long COVID, what that's going to do for a lot of people that are going to be living with that forever. Workforce reality. What does a workforce look like today versus what it used to look like? How did you realize you could actually run a business with most people working from home? OMG. Amazing, isn't it? I never thought I could practice over video, and we've been doing it now for two and a half years quite successfully, and I, I don't think I'd ever go back. I don't want to go back to what used to be. And you know what? We're going to have other things like this. We're going to have a continuation of this pandemic in one form or another going forward. So if you're sitting around waiting for the world to come back to the way it was, stop waiting, my friends. You know, you may not see Santa Claus come down the chimney, but miracles will happen. Just don't wait for them. And the miracle is about moving forward and the opportunities about moving forward and the opportunities about looking at life the way it is now, not the way it used to be. It's about here and today. That's the whole concept of mindfulness. Live in the moment. So my dear friends, as we get into the show here with lots to talk about, just bear in mind that we're here right here right now together. It's Saturday night. You're on the road to recovery. This is Yona Bud, 640 Toronto. 
You're listening to Road to Recovery with Yona Bud, only on 640 Toronto. And welcome back. This is Yona Bud. You are on the Road to Recovery. Thank you for joining us. We know you have choices, and we're glad you chose us. So thanks for being here. We've got a lot going on, a busy show, a lot of guests, stuff to talk about. If you want to chat with us, you want to just chime in and share, 416-870-6400 or 888 225 8255, we're standing by ready to take your calls. A teen driver who was behind the wheel of a speeding car that fatally killed two young children in front of their home, he was sentenced to serve a year in open custody youth facility. The boy was 16 at the time of the, cra- of the crash, cannot be identified, of course, because he's uh, according to the Youth uh, Criminal Justice Act, uh, found guilty in December, two counts of dangerous driving causing uh, death, one of dangerous driving causing bodily harm. Uh, in all, uh, Justice David Rose handed down the sentence Monday in a judge alone trial at the Superior Court of Justice in Newmarket. Um, in open custody sentences, a young person normally spends the first two thirds of their term in a youth facility with fewer restrictions and conditions than a detention center, and the final third in the community under supervision. Falls a little short of what Crown Prosecutor Sean Doyle was looking for. The defense was looking for much less. Uh, by the way, his kids also got a 10-year driving ban. Uh, on with the phone or in the in with the, or on with us this evening by phone. <laughs> I knew I'd find it. It's my good friend and uh, criminal lawyer, uh, Jonathan Lapide. He's an uh, expert in uh, in uh, criminal law and uh, drug-induced uh, DUIs and alcohol-induced DUIs um, and works with this kind of stuff all the time as a separate issue. Uh, Jonathan, welcome to the show. How you doing, man? Good evening, Yona. A pleasure to be back with you. Doing well. Excellent. Thank you so much. I hope we're catching you sneaking into a room somewhere fun, um, sneaking away from all the action and activity that I know you'd be busy with on a Saturday night, of course, wearing your mask and washing your hands. But listen, man, like, does this make any sense? Like this teen kid, he kills a couple of kids in front of their house. They were just playing. It's not even like you can say, well, they were running in traffic and he didn't see them. Um, He was speeding, flying along. And it seems to be like not a slap in the wrist for sure, but does this seem just in, in the terms of what we see in court these days? It all depends uh, on how you define just. Of course, as a matter of fact, this is a family tragedy and uh, there's no moving away or getting away from that. But remember, the offender is a minor and young offenders in this country are treated differently. There is a Young Offenders Act. And you also have to remind yourself that uh, when you're dealing with young offenders, uh, they cannot be treated like adults because they simply aren't. And you would know that. Uh, They have more neurons going through their head at one given time than anyone. Their brains appear to be undeveloped at at some stage. And the courts recognize that. But more importantly, the courts recognize that what we want is rehabilitation over incarceration. We can't have a society of 13-year-olds or even 16-year-olds lifelong criminals. So we prefer community facilities. Okay, I get that. That I okay, you, you got me going here. I'm I'm on your side so far. The and by the way, I'm all about you know rehabilitation too. But there's a lot of people out there that are talking about you know it's still murder. What about the family? What about the kids whose lives were lost? Like, um, so the judge, 
seemed to think it was, um, Justice Rose said the case was a challenging one. It's apparent, he said, is that, that the range of sentences for youth found guilty of danger. He easily came to the conclusion that jail time was not needed, adding the teen driver has no private history. He got the impression that the kid was really upset, um, wiping his eyes in tears. He was obviously griefed and had been deeply tortured every day by the pain of the event. Um, so, and I'm with you. The, the only thing I didn't see, buddy, is I didn't see in the article anything that says, and part of that, you know, part of that three-year time that he's going to be in and out of some facility, he's getting some kind of help. Are, are these facilities that we're referring to, that um, are they providing some form of uh, rehabilitation, or is it just a softer custody scenario? No, no, not at all. It is that the, the offender is on probation, and during that probation, there will be uh, plenty of uh, treatment and plenty of uh, rehab and counseling. Uh, there's no doubt about that. He's not getting away um, uh, lightly, and I'll tell you why. I happen to know Justice Rose. I practice quite regularly in the New Market Courts. Justice Rose is one of the most firm judges that you can find on impaired driving, one of the firmest. And without getting uh, too dramatic, I can say that there are many defense counsel that are concerned that when they bring a client to court in front of Justice Rose, if it's a very egregious first offense, once again, I repeat, first offense, Justice Rose has put them in jail for egregious offenses where there are aggravating factors like an accident, an injury, sometimes even just extremely elevated readings and irresponsibility. So if Justice Rose saw fit in this challenging case to provide what was no doubt the appropriate sentence in these circumstances, you can be sure that he thought long and hard about this particular case. That's why I knew you'd be the perfect guest. You know that, right? Anyway, um, <laughs> I, I, I guess the question I, I have before, there's another subject I want to talk about here in terms of cannabis and alcohol DUI since I got you on anyway. Uh, but uh, what about, where does that same remorse and sadness and living with grief and tortured life like, the, like Justice Rose referred to uh, when he was talking about handing down the sentence for this young person, um, does that play when you're, when you're dealing with, you know, 25-year-olds, 35-year-olds, you know, people with have a couple of kids and a wife at home or a family at home or whatever, right? Um, does that play into the uh, decision by judges often? Are they taking the emotional impact of the event uh, into consideration when they, they look at sentence? Absolutely. And I can tell you from experience that uh, the most prominent uh, document in a sentencing uh, proceeding is the victim impact statement. The victim does very much have a role in uh, the judicial system, uh, particularly where there are injuries uh, pursuant to a uh, drinking and driving offense or, um, or a marijuana uh, drug uh, offense. Right. And, and in that impact statement, or the victim impact statement as it's known, uh, they're, they're asked to reflect on how this event has changed their life not only physically, but also psychologically, professionally, um, economically. And it's a pretty thorough statement when done right, presented to the judge, and very much taken into consideration, uh, even among, uh, and particularly among adult offenders. 
We're talking to Jonathan Lapid. He's a criminal lawyer in Toronto, an excellent one, by the way. Uh, we're talking. We're on the road to recovery. If you're just tuning in, uh, thank you so much, um, Jonathan. Before I, I kind of we get. You know, just we never have enough time. But this talking about DUIs, combined DUIs. Just going to flip the switch here. Alcohol and cannabis report. Um, there appears to be forty-two percent of people who are one, two, and five drivers. Forty-two percent who use alcohol and cannabis in the past year said they've driven under the influence. Um, is this becoming a thing now? This, this, you know, does it really matter if you blow for the alcohol or test for the cannabis, or if they catch you with both? Is it like double trouble? Well, I can I can indicate that uh, since the legalization of uh, marijuana in Canada, the suggestion was that there would be uh, a huge increase in drug uh, impaired driving, and um, I believe that the, the the study that you're referencing is a U.S. study. Yes, it is. And I'm not sure what the sponsorship behind that study is, but I can tell you that anecdotally, meaning what I see in my practice, that just doesn't seem to be the case. Okay. Now, I can, so, I can further, I can further uh, clarify that if I were to theorize as to what's going on, uh, there has been some discussion in the U.S. about the Democrats trying to bring in uh, either legalization or decriminalization of marijuana uh, uh, and um, maybe this is uh, some organization study to suggest that it ought not be done. But in my practice, uh, I don't see the combination uh, very often, and I certainly don't see uh, a substantial uptick in, uh, in marijuana-impaired driving. Okay, so let's just... Let's just look at this logically. I mean, that's great. And, and, and it is a, it's the only report I could find of its kind that sort of made sense and it came out in a, in a publication that, you know, I have respect for. But um, the, 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 we have to be looking at the fact that legalized weed has somehow, we've got a minute left only, buddy, and then we've got to do this again, right? Sure. But, um, legalized weed, how does it not um, impact impaired driving and insofar as even people that don't realize they're impaired get pulled over for a broken spotlight or, you know, or, or taillight or something um, I guess there's not a lot of swabbing going on. I haven't heard much about it so I, I haven't heard much about any kind of swabbing going on on the street level. Am I missing yeah. something? Excellent question uh, Yana. excellent question and the reason is this. In Canada uh, the legislation that came in in 2018 which is under Bill C-46 speaks about uh, marijuana and drug, uh, drug driving, drug-impaired driving, and it does even create a hybrid offense of, uh, for example, uh, lower amounts of both alcohol and uh, drugs. So, for example, 2.5 nanograms of THC, right, which is right. the active ingredient in marijuana, plus 50 milligrams of alcohol, uh, percent. Is, is enough is enough okay uh, i'm getting I, i'm getting i'm sorry i don't mean to cut you off buddy i'm sure. getting a, a flashing light from my producer i'm talking to jonathan lapide he's a he's an amazing criminal lawyer you can find him at jonathan um look him up he's the guy if god forbid you're stuck in a situation we can have him back on again uh because he just knows so much about so many things related to the things i want to talk about we're going to be right back we've got so much more to do stay tuned you're on the road to recovery this is Jonah bud 640 toronto 
Welcome back to Road to Recovery with Yona Bud, only on 640 Toronto. Okay, and welcome back to the show. Thank you for joining us tonight. This is Yona Bud. You are on the Road to Recovery. And if you're joining us for the first time, we really appreciate you being here because we know you have other choices and we're glad you choose us. Lots going on in, in the news today, a busy show going on, but have a really an amazing guest uh, with us this evening. And, and really what we're talking about is the article, uh, the information that's out amongst media about the Sportsnet taking, uh, getting into the betting business, getting into the gambling business, gaming business, as it's tying into their broadcasts. So it's now taking the dimension of gaming, gambling from, you know, just a computer screen, you know, your, your cell phone, whatever, to being part of the broadcast uh, process um, for sporting events. So I, you know, I read this, had a bunch of questions and uh, hopefully uh, my guest is going to be able to enlighten me. I'm sure he will. Um, but for the most part, you know, the article goes on to say that uh, Sportsnet's going to begin to introduce odds, lines, and other sports betting lingo into their hockey broadcasts. Um, it'll be more of a Jack Campbell tap on the pants of a teammate than a Brad Marche face wash to the opponent, so to speak. So it's, it's kind of going to be lightly and lightly tapped into it from the sounds of it. We know we're hitting a very big audience that uh, may not be betting or like betting, uh, but uh, they're not sure how much, how it's going to impact the broadcast itself. So the regulators and media companies and stakeholders, they've been collaborating to put this together for a long time. We're following behind, obviously, in the U.S. markets because it's available in the U.S. markets a year ago, actually. ESPN carried a betting-focused broadcast on its alternative channel, um, and it worked out, I think, fairly well for them. So my, my guest here this evening is Paul Burns. He's the president and CEO of the Canadian Gaming Association. And uh, we're going to talk about a little this a little bit. Paul, thanks for joining us this evening. How are you doing? I'm great. Thank you for having me. Well, it's a pleasure. So how do you feel about this uh, opportunity? Is this a good thing for you uh, in terms of the gaming industry? Or is this something you're, you're concerned about? And if so, what, what your concerns might oh. be, if any? Well, uh, we think it's, it's, it's a good thing. It's for the evolution of... Canada's gaming industry was uh, it's a very important evolution change launch for uh, creating a regulated marketplace for online gaming right. in Canada, in Ontario, because in Canada, um, Canadians have had un, basically unrestricted access to online gaming forever okay. uh, because of anomalies to the Canadian criminal code that talk about the provinces conducting and managing gaming within their jurisdictions the unsettled legal question is where does an online gaming bet occur in your home here in Canada or in a server offshore um, in Europe somewhere. And no one ever wanted to test that. So the market was what they call gray and it was allowed to grow about a billion dollars a year in uh, profits earned by offshore companies left the country and Canadian operations couldn't compete, couldn't offer it because they were here in Canada under the subject of the Canadian Criminal Code. So we've been advocating for this change for a long time because we wanted to, one, level the playing field for Canadian gaming operators, two, um, make sure that all gaming that's offered within the jurisdiction in Canada is regulated. Uh, we think that's very important. Um, we uh, are an industry that uh, that uh, you know, supports and embraces regulation. Uh, it really is part of the industry's DNA and the way we operate. So what is that? What, what, let me jump in here. What does that mean that we're unregulated? So when I go to the OLG site or I want to oh, bet no. on a, you're talking about specifically sports betting. What we were talking about is that, uh, you know, it was the, the sites um, that were coming from Europe. So it was um, 888, um, Bet365, uh, Betway, 
uh, Leo Vegas, those companies that when you people could play on those uh, before the regulated market opened in Ontario, those were unregulated by Canadian jurisdictions, regulated in other jurisdictions around the world, but not here oh, in I Canada. See. Didn't pay I tax, see. no I revenue see. coming back. OLG okay. and all these entities very much regulated here uh, in Canada. Why wouldn't this? Why wouldn't this have been an OLG play as opposed to a Sportsnet play? Well, that was the the you know the the government of Ontario has chosen to uh, create what they call an open market. So anybody uh, is free to. Uh, come and apply for uh, licensing registration and if successful uh, launch business and that was there was two the objectives of for the Ontario government were to try and battle the the, the significant sized uh, gray market in in Ontario and it was really began with a philosophy more about um, bringing them into the regulated market versus trying to slam the door and police them to keep them out. And I think that was, that was one for sure, because they felt um, the government was, when they announced this in uh, spring of 2019 in the provincial budget, they said they were, they went with uh, a few principles that led the way. One was not wanting to interrupt the customer experience because they know Ontarians have been gambling online and they didn't want to get in the, in the way and put barriers uh, to it. So having to force people to go through a lottery corporation or others, but to maintain their relationships with the, the private operators they have and to enhance the consumer protection measures. And, and, uh, and so that's, that was what guided them in this. And so we have, um, I think there are about 12 operators ready to, or in the market to go and uh, probably upwards of 30 within the next uh, several a week's days and months almost sounds uh, like the er- almost sounds like the early days of licensing weed shops right um, and you don't have to grow this product and it actually works so uh, <laughs> so let me let me ask you something just so we can get through some questions here it's yeah. very it's fascinating i mean you're, you're you're sharing stuff that's really quite fascinating How, what's the i mean I'm, I'm a therapy guy right crisis guy what's the what's the what are the fail-safe measures in place to make sure someone doesn't lose their shirt quote unquote in this regulated environment and that's, it, it's extremely important uh, when the province approached this. And this is something that I think that, and it's been positively embraced by the operators of entered the market. So the Ontario and Canadian jurisdictions, we've done very well at responsible gaming education awareness um, in this country, uh, partly because of the government involvement. Uh, we created some great programs. Uh, the Game Sense program, which was created in uh, by BC Lottery Corporation uh, has it's been exported uh, to numerous jurisdictions. MGM uses it on their platform with all of their, their casino operations in the United States. Um, we have world leading researchers. So what has it led? So the consultation obviously through uh, creating a regulatory environment was very strong on, on putting in the consumer protection measures. So what have we seen? Well, we have player advertising in terms of, um, we can't offer, operators cannot offer uh, bonuses, inducements, or right. any kinds of incentives in mass market advertising, which right. is a staple of the ads in the United States right now. If you see TV from US and it says, like, sign up today and get $1,000 in free bets. Or, exactly, exactly. You won't see that on Canadian, Ontario-based um, operations. They're not permitted to offer those in mass market advertising. They still are permitting them to offer them to their customers once they've signed up, 
but as an inducement to get people to sign up, they can't do that. Two, they have to put a percentage of their advertising spend every year to responsible gaming messages and responsible play. Um, There are uh, mandatory features such as uh, giving players tools to say, I want to limit my spend. Right. Uh, You can do that with weekly or daily or monthly. You can limit your time you spend on these sites. Um, Those tools have to be there. Other in terms of product design and, and, and uh, what kind of languages in, 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 in advertising they can use. So there's a, there's a whole range. The added piece was, is that in Ontario, we have a great organization called the Responsible Gambling Council. And right. they've done, um, they've created what they call an accreditation program. And it's called RG Check. And what that basically does is look at the operation of a gaming operator and say that how do you have the right features in built in not only to your products, but in your business processes and others that you have responsible gaming and responsible play built into your organization. So every operator in Ontario is going to have to go through an RG check certification process within the first three years wow. of signing up. So that's impressive. So there's, there's lots of measures, which is great. And the operators uh, have embraced them. So uh, responsible, healthy relationships with their customers. I think I, you know, it's, it sounds great. It certainly puts some of my concerns at ease. Um, I, we got only but a minute left. Let me ask you something. Were, were you involved in any consultations um, in this process of uh, licensing this uh, in Canada? Oh, very much so. Okay. Um, did they have the, at the table? Did they have anybody that kind of does you know addiction counseling or you know gaming management or crisis management? Was there anybody? Where did they get their expertise from? We've got about a minute or so left. Right. Uh, a lot of that expertise came through organizations like the Responsible Gambling Council. Um, a lot of uh, gaming operators have um, director of player health is a position title that exists in many organizations cool. uh, where they work with um and, and one of the things we get from this too, just quickly, is one other I forgot, is the operators are going to have to provide um, non-identifying data to researchers so they can research. Um, and using player data then to, to better understand how we can make products healthier for players. So right. that was another piece. And so they've been, it's widely consulted. And, uh, you know, they did it for almost three and a half years before they came to putting the regulatory standards together and putting the model together. And well, I, so we're confident that that's a good start. Let's see where it goes. Okay. Well, uh, <laughs> I appreciate the information. <laughs> I, I'm excited to see how it rolls out. I, I'd love you to come back if that's okay, maybe in a month or so and just see how this is actually playing out. And uh, it's nice to have someone with some uh, gaming expertise that we can bring on from time to time. So, and uh, appreciate your time tonight and uh, hope to see you again. Happy to join you anytime. Thanks for having me. I was talking to Paul Burns, president and CEO of Canadian Gaming Association. Really good guy, really good guest. We'll have him back on again. You're listening to The Road to Recovery. I'm Yona Budd on 640 Toronto. Addiction is a serious issue, and we take it seriously. This is Road to Recovery with Yona Bud on 640 Toronto. Okay, welcome back to the show. You've got Yona Bud here on The Road to Recovery. Thank you for joining us. If you haven't been on the show before, we're talking about things that help each other. You know, me helping you, you helping me, helping each other. You can call in, talk to us, all that kind of stuff. So tonight we're talking about a whole bunch of stuff, but one of the things that really came to mind for me was talking about the relationships kind of the mess that's left behind 
after COVID-19 in terms of, you know, the people that maybe didn't want to wear a mask or didn't feel like getting a vaccine, weren't doing a great job at coughing into their hands when you ran into them at some store or the pharmacy or something. So there's, a, there's an article recently that talks about uh, at the pandemic and the effect that it's having, it kind of tore apart our marriage. Uh, one writer, her name is Marie. She says, I, I would go out and work and I'd see how bad COVID was to come. And then I'd come home and I'd say, you know, in the morning conversation, she, she would have conversations with her husband. Um, and then they didn't get along. I mean, to the point where she was talking about talking to a, she talked to a divorce lawyer. Uh, they were looking at uh, breaking up their relationship because he thought, you know, COVID-19 was a hoax and she was a frontline worker and saw the death and destruction of this disease upfront and personal. So coming home, they just didn't sink, right? They just didn't sink. And that happens for a lot of people. I, I have, you know, in my own friendship circle, uh, friends that I just didn't hang out with because they didn't think it was important to cover their face and, uh, or, you know, wear a mask or do the appropriate things when this thing got out of hand. And, you know, it's not just me that feels like this. Apparently, there's a lot of people that feel that their relationships have, um, you know, not done well as a result of COVID. A lot of people have said that the marriages and relationships they've been in took a real test during the pandemic. Some of them came out okay. Some of them not so okay. I have a friend of mine who's a family lawyer, does divorce, and he's busier than heck. About 79% of the people, uh, they said that the pandemic brought out the worst in their uh, relationship. 61% believe Canadians' level of compassion for one another has grown weaker as opposed to gotten better. Well, I have an expert on the on, uh, on with us this evening. Her name is Shannon Teb. We like to call her Shanny. And she's a dating coach and founder of boutique matchmaking service, Shanny in the City. Welcome, Shani, to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. So how many relationships did you lose during the pandemic? <laughs> well, if anything, I was bit like, like that divorce lawyer. I was busier than ever. Maybe I was getting all the divorce people looking for new relationships. Everyone's disaster is another one's win, right? So oh, yeah. can we can we drill, drill down through this a little bit? I mean, you're, you're, you're an expert in relationships. Um, quickly, just interestingly enough, aside from the article that we're talking about, how does one become, I mean, I, I come from a, a Jewish uh, background and Jewish community and Orthodox Jewish community and matchmaking is like a real thing, yeah. um, certainly in our world. And I guess it is in every world. Uh, I've just never met one before uh, mm -hmm. that didn't uh, sound like my grandmother. So um, how does a cool person like you get into a business like this? And it's got to be frustrating as heck. So kind of two questions there. Yeah, well, I mean, I got into the business early on as a as a dating coach. So I was, you know, really wanting to help singles get back into dating again, um, help people with their confidence, just get them, you know, help them create a new mindset around dating in general. So I had this large network of singles I was, you know, coaching, plus I did social events in Toronto. So I had this large community. So then I transitioned into matchmaking and you know, I, I just feel like it's a it's a service that people really need, um, especially busy professionals that don't want to go online and swipe. Um, it's a great alternative to kind of have singles vetted and pre-qualified for you. So uh, definitely it's a hard job, not going to lie. I love it, though. And um, when we get the matches right and we find people relationships and that lead to engagements and living together, that's what, you know, makes it really special. 
how does it impact your personal life when you see so many, like, you know, I, I, I'm a therapist. I deal with kids in crisis. I'm a coach. I do all kinds of things. And I, you know, I can't say that I see the world with the rosy colored glasses that I should have. So when trying to have relationships with people, I don't know what your marital status is or isn't, it's probably none of my business, but yeah. at the end of the day, does it kind of, does it make you feel good about the relationship opportunities out there? Or do you see the, the dark side too, especially these days as it relates to the article? Well, one thing I, you know, from COVID, what I've learned interviewing so many singles daily is that, you know, everybody has had this reset where they've really thought about what's important to them as far as mate selection. They've sat with themselves, they've done some personal work. And now they're very, um, I like to say, you know, intentional with dating. So we're seeing people like, you know, meet people that they actually really want to meet, not just like go out for a random drink. So they're more intentional with their time. They're, you know, looking at other resources such as matchmaking. They're really ready to find love again because they have been locked down for two years. And, you know, one thing that we all have in common is we've all been going through this and, you know, we still crave human connection. So at the end of the day, you know, it's about what I like as far as my job is that not everybody's looking for the same type of partner. Not everybody wants the same mate. So just know that if you are single out there, you know, there's somebody out there for you. It's just a matter of time before you meet them. Yeah, you say to people all the time, for every nut, there's a squirrel, right? So uh, <laughs> there, there's a connection to somebody for everything. Um, I want to get to the social uh, social event side of this thing. Obviously, during the pandemic, mm -hmm. uh, you, didn't, you didn't have much going on. Um, you know, uh, kind of an aside here, I deal obviously with a lot of people that are in recovery for substance abuse and different, different things where, you know, socializing without beer or alcohol or mm -hmm. smoking a joint or something, it becomes very difficult. Um, in the world of matchmaking, in the world of social gatherings for uh, single individuals, doesn't seem to be a lot focused on those that, you know, just don't want to get high or drunk in the process. Well, yes. And um, I really like that you raised this point because there's a new trend, you know, called sober dating where people are actually, you know, doing other things than just meeting for drinks or going to bars. They're doing activities together. They're going for walks. Um, they're having more meaningful, emotional conversations. So, yeah, I think when we eliminate the alcohol and like the drugs, all of those things, I think you get a, a better emotional connection with someone. And like I said, it's less hookup culture. Before COVID, people were going out and drinking more, I find, I found. And um, and now, you know, people are less, they've kind of eliminated alcohol out of their lives and they're working more on personal growth and health and wellness. So I think that's why we're seeing a shift to sober dating. And I tell, uh, you know, I tell my patients all the time that these days going out and being the cool one, like I, I'm in recovery, I'm not drinking right now, I'm getting my life together, you know, yeah. I'm seeing a therapist, I'm working, doing mindfulness, yeah. like I explained yeah. to them, that's cool stuff. It's cool and, to say that. And, you and it's in, it's, it's yeah. in, it's hip, it's, it's, yeah. that would be, I think something that would move you to the top of the chart in the selection yeah. category, right? People are even putting that on their dating profiles, you know, that they, that they have a therapist, you know, they're, you know, they, they have a therapist, they have somebody they talk to, they're into mental health, personal development, like, it's, it's, uh, we're getting more comfortable having those emotional conversations and just being completely authentic and open with our feelings more. So that's one thing that the pandemic definitely helped is like bring people to being more vulnerable and more open. Um, let's get to, uh, back to the uh, article here for a second, not to get offline. I could, we could stay on for a whole show together here. Um, and maybe we should do that sometime. I'd like to have you back for sure. But, but so the pandemic itself, 
the pitting of two sides in out vaccine, no vaccine, mask, no vax, no mask. I mean, is it is it something that you're seeing the repercussions from now later in terms of people saying, I need to meet somebody else. The person I was with just doesn't get it. You know, we're, we're at opposite sides of the equation in terms of, uh, of what we think is real and safe and whatever. How has it impacted your business other than you're much busier? Well, now, you know, as a screening tool, I do ask, like, have you been vaccinated or not? And obviously, I'm going to put the non-vaxxers with the not, um, you know, the vaccinated people with the vaccinated people. I don't have many or any um, non-vaxxed um, singles that I work with, maybe two. But um, basically, yeah, like, I mean, it has kind of divided, you know, there's the one side and the other side. But it's really about being open to each other's sides and realizations and opinions around this subject. And maybe not like not even like having an argument or debate, but just doing you and you doing them and them doing them. And if you feel uncomfortable hanging out with someone that's not vaxxed, well, that's your own choice as well. So having those conversations before you meet up, um, say with an online date, you know, asking them what are your boundaries when it comes to meeting a person? Do you still want to wear a mask? What's your comfort level? Having those conversations before you get to the date will definitely help you know, the date goes smooth. I've, I've heard of like, you know, one person meeting um, somebody on a patio and he didn't want to wear a mask and the date ended right there. So therefore that female was left, you know, kind of like, oh my God, this sucks. So really like know who you're meeting, know how they feel around the subject and have like a comfortable conversation around it. And if you feel like you don't want to, you know, meet a non-vaxxer, that's your choice too. Like it's really up to you how you feel around the subject. So I have two really quick questions um, because we only got a couple of minutes left and definitely going to have you back on. If you're just joining us right now, I'm talking to Shani Teb. She's a dating coach and the founder of uh, Shani in the City. And we're going to talk about how to connect with her here in a second. But real quick, for me, it's about the smile, the eyes, you know, the, yes. so you put a mask on, it's kind of harder to connect, right? Um, you know, even with patients, right? Like with patients with, uh, you know, I'm happily, I must say, I'm, I'm happily married to the love of my life. But, you know, in, in my dating days and just in my interacting with people days, um, the smile made a lot of difference to me in terms of what people look like in glass, you know, dark glasses versus being able to see their eyes and so on. Uh, real quick, mask uh, you find is a detriment in trying to connect for the first time or not? Uh, yeah, definitely. So I made a joke about smizing, so smiling with the eyes. So you still can, you still can like lock eye contact for, you know, up to three seconds, you still can kind of be expressive with how you move your body or like wave, hey, have we met before? You still can do something even if you have a mask on. So don't let the mask limit you from talking to strangers or meeting new people. If anything, um, yeah, you just have to get creative with other ways of connection. Are you only available to the rich and famous or can anybody call you? No, um, you know, obviously I work with high, high, um, high income, high level clients, but I work also with, you know, millennials, students, anyone who needs help with dating coaching. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't, there's no prejudice here. I work with anyone who needs my help. And how do they find you? Um, Shannyinthecity.com is my website. Uh, a lot of people connect with me even on Instagram, Shanny in the City. Um, yeah, everything's on my website, all the different services we offer. Okay, so I'm going to start sending you people that need some help. Anyway, I'm talking to my new best friend, Shani Teb. She's the dating coach and founder of boutique matchmaking service, Shani in the City. We're going to have her back on again. Uh, we're talking about the pandemic and breakups. This is Yona Bud here on 640 Toronto. 
You're listening to Road to Recovery with Yona Bud only on 640 Toronto. Okay, welcome back to the show. You're here with Yona Bud on the Road to Recovery, and I'm uh, talking today about the kind of the trauma and the stuff that's going on behind the scenes really about life in general, and specifically, I guess, in this article, as it relates to things, uh, the pandemic, but just generally, this show is about, if you're just tuning in for the first time, this show is about connecting people and uh, ideas and concepts around getting through difficult times and just kind of helping one another the best way that we can. So the article I'm referring to, the starts off with a registered practical nurse is standing uh, at the end of a hall on the fourth floor of a McKenzie uh, Richmond uh, Hill Hospital, steps away, a typical day, cares for her medical patients, and so on. Wiping tears away from her eyes, she says, explains how the pandemic's made it difficult, their job even more difficult, or nursing even harder. Uh, the more the tasks, the more the worries, longer days, and so on. Uh, she details how COVID-19's ravaged not just her at work, but her family, her life at uh, outside of home. Uh, her father, her husband became severely ill, and go on. The article is kind of, as you can imagine, uh, you know, hard to listen, hard to read, right? As much as I'm sure it's hard to listen to me chat about it right now. But the frontline workers in our life, the people that are out there uh, doing what they need to do all the time to keep us safe and healthy, um, they're the ones that, you know, we keep talking about the impact it has. And we kind of play a little bit of lip service, pay a little bit of lip service to it and move on past it. Um, I have a guest with me this evening. Her name is Iram Chagala, and she is a trauma and ER nurse. Uh, thank you for joining us tonight, Iram. Thank you. It's um, a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Yeah, so that's great. Um, first of all, I want to say thank you and on behalf of me and everybody who's listening for the incredible work that you and your colleagues do um, up and down the halls day and night. Um, so thank you. And I really appreciate that you're there. Uh, I, you know, I went through a situation with my mom recently. She wasn't well. So I can tell you firsthand, everybody that uh, nurses and ER folks are just like, they don't get any better. Um, but, you know, reading the article, I'm sure you heard a little bit about it. The, the, the situation as it's unfolded over the last uh, I guess, man, the past 24 months now. Um, how are you? Like, before we get into the story, how are you managing and how are you doing? Well, uh, like I've said before, and I'll say it again, it's just honestly one step at a time, one breath at a time. That's that's pretty much what, that's all you can really do. So you talk about, you know, that's a that's kind of a either a mindful saying or a saying from an AA meeting, but it's exactly where you need to come from. So when you talk about one breath at a time, one step at a time, is this something that um, you've kind of always engaged with in terms of a style uh, practicing, um, you know, being a practice, you know, practicing nurse and trauma therapy in a trauma unit specifically? Is this something that has always been a mindset or more specifically now around uh, what you've lived through for the last 20, 24 months or so? I think this is something that I've kind of lived by for most of my life, but I would say that it's been reinforced, especially during the time of the pandemic. I'm talking here with Aram uh, Shigala. We're talking about uh, the trauma and the, and the tears and such behind uh, the scenes in hospitals today. Uh, and you shared with me that you're kind of take a mindful approach to things in terms of one step at a time or one day at a time, one tear, you know, one, one breath at a time, uh, your colleagues, is this something that you're finding is natural for them to, to engage in? Or are you finding it as difficult to kind of keep your colleagues in, in check as it is to kind of yourself and the patients? 
Well, everybody copes differently and, and handles stress and adversity in different ways, shapes and forms. Um, I think that it's when you're coping with stress, um, it's, it's not a one size fits all solution. But I, what I do believe is that with this mantra, so to speak, of right. one step at a time, one breath at a time, right. um, I think that it can be encouraging. And I think that it can really start leading my colleagues and others, even if you're not a healthcare professional and you're going through a really rough time, right. I think that it can just lead you and start steering you in the right di direction, like, it, like the, the start of the right direction, you know? kind of you like know, seeing the end of the light of the, of the tunnel, you know? Yeah, exactly. But you know what? It's what's interesting is that people find that, you know, folks like you and me, you know, people that are dealing with uh, people that are in trauma and have their own issues uh, that we're trying to help them with, you know, we should be okay. We should be able to get through all this and, you know, we should have better skills because we're in, in, in the trauma space and so on. I, for my perspective, I mean, I worked really hard at keeping it all together and sounds like you do too. Um, does that kind of bother you that people expect that you should be more bulletproof than just Joe and Jane average? I, I yeah, it kind of does. And I think it does uh, kind of bother some of my colleagues as well. I mean, yes, we do have to maintain a level of professionalism when we're on the job, of course, but at the end of the day, all of us are human beings. Right. So we all are going to be experiencing emotions and we're all going to react in a different way. Um, some people are outspoken and they're able to vent right. and debrief about events and things with their colleagues. And if they have very supportive family members and friends right. and others just keep it bottled up. And some people react to stress in different ways. It could be um, more than just emotional. It even can go physiological and physical um, aspects of it as well. Yeah, you know, you're, you're talking about, um, you know, the, the, the fact that people, you know, your colleagues are, you know, feel the same way. It, it, the difficulty is, you know, if you look at the commercial, there's a commercial that was some time ago, I haven't seen it in a while, where they're showing a nurse uh, in a stairwell crying her eyes out, I guess, after having a very difficult uh, experience and, or just being just broken down. Uh, and I, and I, it really got to me. Uh, it's difficult to do when you're in the face of other people's trauma, don't you think that, you know, as much as you're feeling that moment, maybe overwhelmed, you really got to kind of suck it up so that you put on the right kind of face for those that you're trying to help. Right. I would say that you have to be at your best composure. So as to encourage positivity uh, with those that are around you and those that you are caring for and family members as well. Yeah, I get it. But in reality, though, when, you know, you, you, you come, you, there must be times when you're coming down the hallway or into a, into a, a, a room or a unit and, and, you know, and you just, you know, maybe if I just had enough, are you able to step away and like take a break for a minute and catch your breath or, or, or kind of push it through until you get lunch break or something? I mean, if it's a very life-threatening situation, for example, we're so busy in a room, no matter what it could be. Um, it's, 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 an emergency situation, you have to be very focused. You have your game on your, your game face, your, your, your mind cap, everything is in there. So you're all focused and you're focused on the patient and your tasks and what you need to get done. And so, you know, in a situation like that afterwards, you know, you, most people will um, have the opportunity or, you know, later on, if they're driving home, for example, 
will think about what happened and have that deep introspection um, or may think, okay, what could we have done better? Or what could I have done better? Or how can I learn about this in the future? But if it's in a situation where, you know, you have a few moments, you can say to yourself or what we say to ourselves is, okay, I need to step back for about, you know, a few minutes and I need a breather, you know, and it's good because what's encouraged for healthcare professionals and of course anybody in general is self-care. Yeah, I, I hear you. So in terms of self-care, we're talking about eating, sleeping, good good fitness and so on, making sure you have time to breathe and maybe meditate a little bit. Um, so I'm glad you brought that up. You know, if you looked at your job today versus your job three years ago, uh, what's the biggest change for you and your colleagues uh, in 2022 different than let's say, you know, 2019? Well, a lot has definitely changed. And I think that the pandemic has definitely given us a different perspective on how um, we live, the way that we act and the way that we are now, if you're going to be traveling, um, the way that we view illnesses now is also very different. So COVID is always a possibility for anybody that comes in presenting with symptoms because back in the day, if someone came in with a sore throat, you'd think it was just a viral infection. But now- there is the possibility that you might be COVID positive. Right. Um, if there's a child that comes in with a fever, um, there's absolutely that uh, possibility that that child may be COVID positive. And, and just the way that things are run in, in, in hospitals in terms of how we now have to be um, super cautious in um, isolating um, individuals with symptoms, but of course, you know, being mindful and, and, and cautious in terms of, you know, Uh, preventing transmission. So, you know, making sure we have all our PPE on, making sure that we, um, you know, remove all that PPE, you know, to make sure that our colleagues and of course other patients don't end up with the disease or transmitting the virus. And of course, most important thing is ensuring that your, your loved ones don't end up with that disease as well. So you're coming home, you know, are you, are you you mindful? Yeah. Are you mindful about others? Are you making sure that you're washing your hands? Um, You know, there's a lot of different things. There's the masks that we have to wear in public. And of course, there's now the new mandate um, where they've lifted um, the um, mask mandate. So, I, I, don't, I don't mean to cut you off, but I, I want to ask you one more question. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, I'm sure making your life more and more difficult with all these changes. We, we only got about 30 seconds left. If you were to do it all over again, um, just you in particular, if you were to do it all over again and have to live through what you just lived through for the last couple of years, would you still be a nurse? Absolutely. There's not a day that goes by that I would just give up. I don't believe in giving up. I'll tell you, you're the kind of people that we need more and more of. I'm talking to Aram Shigala. She's an amazing human being, a trauma nurse, uh, ER nurse as well. Um, Thank you so much for being on the show. We're going to come back. We got more stuff to do. It's Yona Bud here, 640 Toronto. Welcome back to Road to Recovery with Yona Bud, only on 640 Toronto. And welcome back to the show. You have Yona Bud here on the Road to Recovery. What a busy night we're having. It's just getting busier, so much more to do uh, and stuff to talk about. If you're joining us for the first time, uh, we're talking to people about how they're getting through their difficult times and you know others that are helping us get through difficult times. But that's the purpose of the show is try to help everybody's day be a little bit better, maybe get through some tough times together and uh yeah it's kind of a little kumbaya but 
I'm digging it. Hope you are too. Thanks for joining us. Uh, Casey House, if you haven't heard of them, an incredible organization. Uh, they announced on April the 4th that um, they launched the Outpatient Supervised Consumption Service Program, uh, providing a second safe space for clients to use their own drugs while being monitored by the trained staff, provide emergency uh, medical care if needed, which is critical. A specialty hospital normally for people that are living with and at risk of HIV, um, which already puts them in a class of their own as far as I'm concerned in terms of a house full of superstars. Uh, Casey House is the first hospital in Ontario, the third in Canada, to offer on-site supervised consumption as part of its health care. Um, you don't have to be a harm reduction expert to understand that this is essential according uh, Central Health Service, according to Jennifer Dooling, she's the principal at Genova Private Management and the chair of Casey House Board of Directors. Casey House, uh, are they open to register clients 24 hours a day, 10 a.m. to 4 p.m.? Uh, they have outpatient program, inpatient program, all kinds of interesting stuff. We'll find out more about them. Um, Hospital-based supervised drug use and overdose prevention is something Casey House feels people should be entitled to as part of overall healthcare, being able to safely use substances while on site keeps people connected to healthcare, says Dr. Ed Kucharski, Chief Medical Officer at Casey House, and my guest this evening. Dr. Kucharski, can I call you Ed? Of course, please do. Okay, Ed, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Um, a, couple, a bunch of questions here. We'll, we'll get through the, the stuff that we can uh, in the short period of time, and then hopefully you'll, you'll like me enough that you'll come back another time. Uh, but a couple of things. So one of the things that really been, just to get right to it, first of all, amazing that you're opening a second facility. I, I, I just think, you know, we need 25 of them, but I think you think so too. Uh, behind, you know, in my office, uh, I have a box full of fentanyl test strips. Yeah. And uh, I bought a hundred of them, uh, give them out to people where I can, uh, and basically test your urine and test the drugs mm -hmm. to see if they're, you know, if they're hot for fentanyl. Um, is that something, what about drug testing in, in the types of facilities you're talking about? It's one thing to use it in a safe environment, but is there a way that your, your clients are able to get a heads up on what they're using? So I would say we're very similar in our capabilities of drug testing. And unfortunately, it isn't as sophisticated as we would like. And so, you know, the same test strips that you have, I presume, are the same test strips that we might have. And, you know, they have their limitations. You know, they, they don't test for all the analogs of fentanyl. Uh, they don't tell you how much there is. But there are some positive you know, things about it, you know, being a test strip, if it is positive, you know, there's fentanyl there. And so, you know, our clients can make decisions based around that, you know, don't use alone. And certainly if they're in our supervised consumption services, they won't uh, be alone or they could choose to use less. And for some of our clients too, it actually helps confirm what they're, what they're buying from their dealer. Exactly. exactly. So that is another positive uh, outcome for that. But again, you know, they do have their limitations. We, we don't just test for fentanyl, but we have test strips for benzodiazepines. And as you know, the, the drug supply is increasingly toxic with many different things in them. So benzos uh, has been a, another thing that we've been finding as well. You're talking about taste, uh, tainted benzodiazepines. And, and for people that don't know what a benzodiazepine is, give them a couple of, uh, of uh, names that they might recognize. Sure. So, so classically, the, the first uh, benzodiazepine that most people would have heard about is Valium uh, from the 1960s, but there are many different types of benzodiazepines that have evolved uh, since then. And what we're finding now is benzodiazepines that I, as a, a family doctor, haven't seen because they're used for other purposes like veterinary medicine and very powerful 
uh, benzodiazepines uh, in the drug supply that someone might be purchasing an opioid and get that as well, which puts people at even more risk uh, of overdose. It's interesting. I don't want to belabor this point because we could do it for hours together, but I had a patient not long ago uh, show up in a hospital um, for a bunch of mental health related situations and uh, they tested his urine and he had just done a whole bunch of coke and they couldn't find any. Oh, yeah. You know, they found all kinds of stuff. Uh, some ketamine, I think, is what you're referring to some in terms of some animal type stuff. Uh, uh, there's all kinds of veterinary meds that are out there. But uh, people just need to understand they're not using clean drugs. So the, the advantage to being in a in a safe consumption site from the from a user's perspective uh, is, I guess, uh, the benefit of having medical support around them. How do you deal with people that say, you know, you're catering to people who should know better? You know, like, why should they be using drugs at all? And why are we paying for them to these junkies to be in a place where they can get high uh, with medical support? How do you respond to that? Uh, I, we respond with compassion, <laughs> as we do at Casey House. I love that. Um, but I actually have to say, I'm surprised that we're, we don't get that very frequently. But you're absolutely right. People will have a strong reaction. And um, I kind of think of back to when I was growing up, and I, I grew up in the 80s. And that was, you know, the I guess maybe the height of the war on drugs with Nancy Reagan telling everybody drugs are bad. Yeah. And, you know, that seeped into, you know, I think people thinking that people who use drugs are bad. And, you know, I, I think we've made some progress in society in being a bit more compassionate and understanding. Um, and at the very, you know, the very basis of what we're doing is we're trying to save lives, right? People are dying from the toxic drug supply. Um, but if people don't get that in and of itself, we do have great evidence that, you know, doing uh, or providing uh, supervised consumption services can reduce the risk of harm. Um, you know, we have evidence that it reduces the transmission of HIV and hepatitis C, uh, eMERGE visits and subsequent hospitalization. So, you know, for someone who's just thinking about money and taxes, really, it does save money uh, that way. Interesting. I, the comment I referred to earlier is, is the one you hear when people want to, you know, when someone wants to open a facility close to a neighborhood. Um, and it's that kind of, you know, kind of neighborhood response. But uh, uh, just for the record, you and I are exactly on the same side, um, maybe far away, but on the same side. Um, doctor, let me uh, add, can I, how can we as a society, do you think, uh, do a better job of supporting people, uh, not just with substance use disorder, but, you know, there was a time I remember, I'm, you know, I've been, I'm an old guy, I've been around a long time. I had a very close friend who was one of the first HIV uh, positive people in Ontario. Uh, we were very close until he passed. And, and, and uh, you know, there was a time I lived through that with him and others, other friends of mine in that community um, who were, you know, chastised and, and really, you know, shunned as a result of being uh, potentially a spreader of something. Um, I, I, how do we do a better job of, with, of with dealing with mental health and addiction like we have learned to do with those that are, uh, you know, have the issue of, of being diagnosed with HIV. I think we've done a great job, a better job anyway, of, of being compassionate and understanding and warm and loving like we should be. How do we get there with addiction, do you think, and mental health? Because I think you see both. Yeah, I, I think there's, you know, it's a complex problem for, you know, many levels, you know, I think about, you know, the public and society, but also, you know, what we're doing in our healthcare education uh, programs uh, as well. I think fundamentally, it comes down to uh, thinking about uh, this not as a moral issue for, you know, people who use substance, but, but as a health issue. And you could say the same thing as, you know, some people may separate mental health uh, outside of, you know, health issues in general, but I think we're here to help people and, and not judge uh, people and that, you know, you can kind of uh, 
allow to seep into our education programs, whether it's young doctors or nurses, but also out into the public. And I, I think over time, as you say, you know, we have done a better job at that. Um, and again, I think there's multiple uh, reasons for that. I, I think over time, we, you know, activists and shows like yours uh, and getting to understand perhaps even how the opioid crisis started right. um, in a lot of the books and media that are out there in the past year or so, I think actually has humanized people's experience and really, um, I, I think it's made people a lot more understanding of how people have come to use substances for sure. Amazing. We, you've got uh, a couple of, only a couple of minutes, but a minute and a half left. Uh, a, quick, a quick question. Uh, how do you feel about the concept of decriminalization? Do you think it's going to help what you do or hinder what you do? Uh, certainly, I would say it would help what we do. We, we really believe people who use substances should have a safe space and the people who use substances shouldn't be criminalized. And we think that um, ending criminalization of substance use will decrease stigma, as we've already uh, talked about. But more importantly, I think it'll create pathways to improving health and outcomes because, you know, thinking about, uh, we both have uh, an inpatient supervised consumption site and an outpatient supervised consumption site. I'm going to use the example of a, a client or patient who's on our inpatient ward getting treated uh, for pneumonia. You know, they may have tons of barriers of coming in to getting care because they are using, whether it is criminalization or being judged for using, but by having a supervised consumption site on you know, our inpatient ward, they don't leave uh, they, they, and they don't have to hide their substance use and risk overdose. So we actually have multiple uh, um, advantages uh, to this. Um, so, you know, in terms of decriminalization, we, we really do support calls for the federal government to decriminalize simple drug possession for personal use and develop policies, you know, subsequently that can really help people who do use uh, substances. Uh, i got about 30 seconds left and I am going to ask you to come back another time because I want to do much more with you. If you're just tuning in, I'm talking to Ed Kucharski. He's chief medical officer at Casey House. Uh, Ed, out of all the jobs you could have had, why Casey House? Casey House, uh, as you said in, in the beginning, it's a fantastic place. They do amazing work. Uh, they lead with compassion. They provide judgment-free care. It, it's a place that anybody would be lucky to receive uh, their care. Well, um, you're an amazing, an amazing man, an incredible doctor, I'm sure. And uh, anybody who gets to work with you would be a part of your life, I'm sure, is blessed and uh, should think so. We'll have you back another time, like I said, because I could just do more and more of this. Uh, when we come back, there's more to talk about here. Yonabud, 640 Toronto. Addiction is a serious issue, and we take it seriously. This is Road to Recovery with Yonabud on 640 Toronto. Welcome back to the show. Thank you. You're uh, on the road to recovery. We got a little bit left today uh, or this evening. God, it was a busy show so far. Right? I hope you're keeping up and uh, enjoying some of the conversations and learning something and, you know, maybe finding your way through to wanting to talk with us here at 416-870-6400 or 888-225-8255. On Thursday nights uh, on this network, on this station, uh, I am joined by the host of On Point um, and um, this week's uh, guest host. Uh, it's usually Alex Pearson. And um, this week on um, 
Jody Vance was uh, hosting the show. Uh, it's at 9.05 on Thursday nights. It's part of On Point. It's a, it's a segment called Wellness Check. Uh, it's where we talk about some things around the globe or around the city or around the country that, you know, we need to chat about in terms of helping people feel a little bit better. And um, in this week's this week's show, um, Glenn, um, he, um, he reached out. He's the producer. He reached out and um, said that Jody had a friend. And that her friend was talking to her about a situation that he was in when someone he knew was suicidal and having a really hard time. He himself at the time was going through a difficult time uh, with his own mental health. And, you know, would I be okay to talk with him on air instead of, you know, passing it kind of through to her in terms of her asking questions he'd want to ask and so on. Um, his name is Eric Chapman, a wonderful man. Uh, he's, a, he's a contributor to our network as well. He's got a great radio voice. When you hear it, I'm sure you'll agree. Um, let's listen to what uh, he had to say, and then we're going to jump back into this. We're talking about suicide and suicidal thoughts and how we help each other and help one another. Have a listen. This is uh, Eric Chapman chatting with me about uh, what he was thinking and how he was feeling. Friend of mine tried to take his life on Sunday. Longtime family friend, his mom, my mom, friends for forty years, and my mom were my mom and I were discussing this during my mental break because for three months I had to take short term disability and I was have I had a mental breakdown. I lost it. It's a horrible long story. I, speaking of loss, I lost my Oma to COVID. My dad I'm died. Sorry, lived sorry, twenty minutes from me. I didn't know he was there. I ended up with my dead dad's dog. Like it's this crazy oh, thing. So, brother. anyways. Yeah, so I was with my mom, and uh, she mentioned that he maybe, you know, was having suicidal thoughts. And if you are having suicidal thoughts and listening to this, please reach out to someone. Talk to anyone. There's, there's suicide hotline numbers. But she mentioned that she had asked him, do you have a plan? And he said, yes. And so I was like, oh, no, you know, I, I, I want to reach out to him. But I couldn't because where I was, it was, it was too much. I couldn't. I had, didn't have the spoons. So I wonder... Yep. When you're in a situation, like, how do we approach that to, to try and keep that guilt at a minimum? Okay, so we got cut off a little bit there um, at the end here. I'm sorry. Uh, but uh, he, he wanted to know, what do you do? Uh, the question was, what do you do when you're in a situation and someone needs help, but you just don't have the, the parts to kind of get up and go? And, you know, what I, what I explained to him, and by the way, you can find, uh, you can find that segment uh, from Thursday night on, uh, on uh, social media, on, on a podcast there from uh, under our network. But um, it, it, was a very, it was a very moving segment, I thought, for both of us. Uh, but anyway, he, he, um, we went on to talk about, you know, how do you help somebody when you don't have it together well enough to help yourself. And, you know, I shared with him that what's really important is that you take care of yourself first before you're able to support others. It's kind of like, you know, being on the edge of something, let's say the edge of a cliff, and you're kind of got to get your bearings before you can support your buddy who might also have to be on the edge of that same cliff. Before he steps into you, you have to have a good foundation. Before you step into someone else's scenario, situation, especially something as heavy and as, as, as weight, as weighty psychologically, emotionally, and otherwise as weighty as dealing with someone who's feeling like their life isn't worth living. It's a real, you know, I, 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 I jokingly, it's nothing funny about life and death, but I, I, I kind of casually tell people when they say, what do you do for a living? And I say, I sell life 
because the majority of the time I spend talking to people about why it's more, it makes more sense for them to live than to die, where it makes more sense to be healthy than to kill yourself with substances and at-risk behaviors of all kinds. It's a sales job. It's a sales job. You got it's, It takes work to convince somebody. And you can't do that. Can you imagine going to work when you're not feeling your best? That's what we're talking about here. So it goes on. The conversation with he and I goes on, and we start talking a little bit about, you know, how he deals with, um, you know, some of the guilt related to that. And, and you can't go backwards. You can't be responsible for everyone's life if you're not taking care of your own first. So that's the number one message, right? Number one message is it, it's nice to be there for others, but it makes sense only when you're in a position to do it. You know, no sooner would you get up and go pick up a friend that, you know, had a problem with his car or ran out of gas if you'd had two or three drinks, I hope, and knew that you'd probably blow over if you went somewhere. You're just not in a position to do it. Maybe you can send him an Uber. If he's really in trouble, you can get into an Uber and go join them if that's what needs to happen. In Eric's case, he was having a hard time keeping himself together. But he felt so that it was necessary for him to go out and try to help someone else in his mind it's what was needed. And he felt real guilty and a lot of negative thoughts around not being able to get up and go. I'm here to tell you, my friends, that, you know, the, I guess the best way to tell you a quick story. I used to have a psychologist. His name was Dr. Goldman. Um, you know, he was older when we met and, you know, I used to go to him for advice and some support and some therapy. And um, he, I, I once said to him years, you know, not so long ago, maybe three, four or five years ago, said to him, you know, I have a real problem with, you know, turning my phone off at night or going on a holiday and not looking at my phone. And, and, and he said to me, so what's, you know, what's your concern? And my concern is, you know, if someone doesn't reach me, they might die. Can you imagine the ego I have or had certainly at that time? And he said to me, Yona, there was world, there was a world before Yona, but and there's a world after Yona, but I'm sure. And they can always call 911. You got to remember that we're not always a person's last resort. Even if they make you feel like you are, they can always call 911. Hopefully there's at least one other person in their life. But you can only do so much. And if you are in a position to help someone, if you are in a position to try to deal with their situation and try to help them understand or to let them understand that you understand or feel them, understand where they're coming from, you get them. You're trying to feel their pain. You don't know exactly where they are right now, but you're trying to feel their pain. That's what's important. When someone's not in a good place in their head, it's very important that they get heard. Being heard is such an important part for all of us. Every one of us needs the ability to be heard, the ability for someone to pay attention to what we have to say and make us feel that what we're saying has some value through their attentiveness. When someone's in a place where they don't think they have any value, one of the things that's most important is that they recognize that to you they have value. You're important to me one would say. I love you for you. I don't know who else you have in your life, but you certainly have me and I'm here right now. Assuming you're in a position to be able to do that. In recent years, there's been a push to normalize talking about mental health and mental illness to help end the quote-unquote stigma that we all talk about. But sometimes, even if you have the best intentions, we all find ourselves mostly floundering with someone 
with, with the words when someone confides us about struggling with their mental health. I mean, clearly I'm a professional, it's what I do. But I find myself often trying to best understand what's going on in the person's mind. And sometimes it's more difficult than others. And I have to say, I'm trying to connect with you. I'm trying to understand what you're feeling right now. I'm just not getting it. Can you please, please try to explain. Please try to put it in words. What's so horrible in your life right now that, you know, you're looking to, to end it. But I can do that because I have places to go with them with therapeutic skills and strategies. So tonight what I think is important is maybe we can spend some time, this segment and the next segment, spend some time understanding how to help somebody who's in a position of such despair that they want to take their lives, who's in such a bad position that they don't see another way out. You know, a lot of people use substances, drugs, alcohol, substances. A lot of people gamble, have, uh, have uh, informal relationships, affairs, uh, sexual you know, experiences, all kinds of things that you know, they do because it, they're trying to numb some kind of discomfort or pain in their life to make, quote-unquote, a lousy day better. I use different language, but I'm not allowed to on air. But you get my drift, right? Turn a lousy day better. So a lot, you know, most of us that are out there, most of people out there don't don't have a lot of skills and strategies around managing a difficult day, let alone helping someone else manage their difficult day, so difficult that they want to hurt themselves. So I think it's important for us to look at it maybe together for a little while here. We'll do a few of them here before we go to break, and then when we come back, we'll talk some more about it. But I'd like to talk to you about some of the things you can do, five steps, so to speak, of things we can do to help when we're in a situation. Uh, there is someone waiting online that wants to speak to us about their experience in grief and how it understands what you've gone through. Um, this is uh, not a segment we're doing right now, but we'll, uh, we want to continue here and talk about the, the, the strategy around suicide. But I appreciate we have callers and texters that are calling in, and uh, we appreciate their, their time. Uh, but suicide has, you've got to know the signs of suicide. Suicide has a deeper stigma uh, surrounding it other than mental health issues. So someone might be willing to share that they've been struggling with depression, for example, and feeling anxious, um, you know, but people normally know now, it's a kind of a norm, that when you say something like, I want to hurt myself or kill myself, that someone might call 911. So because suicide, they're afraid to talk about it and how someone's going to react. Therefore, it's important to recognize the signs that someone might be planning their suicide. Talking about it is one thing, but as I'm sure you've heard before, Planning it is entirely another, and the one, the part of it that we really are concerned about is the planning part. Some of these signs include there's some preoccupation with death, getting their affairs in order, right? Getting their affairs in order, trying to get to a position where, you know, quote unquote, you know, if, if I die tomorrow, everything's under control. So I think what we'd like to do here is um, get a better understanding of, of, you know, what they're saying. If they start saying goodbye to you, and they start withdrawing from others, hiding from others, not you know, not answering calls, not taking phone phone calls, not uh, responding when you knock at their door, not showing up to work. Most of the signs connect around hopelessness, right? The person feels so hopeless that all aspects of their life they don't see any situation that can be improved. Therefore, the only thought in their mind is to be suicidal. If someone does, in fact, share with you that they have a suicidal, they're having suicidal thoughts, just remain calm, be attentive, listen to them, say, hey, I hear you, I understand. 
And, you know, don't freak out because if you freak out, they're going to freak out and you're going to startle them and likely they're not going to pay attention long enough for you to continue to have that conversation with them, which is so important. As soon as we come back from break, we're going to talk about starting that conversation with someone who has suicidal thoughts and perhaps even a plan. And that's when we need to pay attention. You're listening to Yona Bud here on 640 Toronto. You're listening to Road to Recovery with Yona Bud only on 640 Toronto. Welcome back. It's Yona Bud on our last little stretch here on the Road to Recovery on 640 Toronto. Appreciate you guys reaching out and being part of what we got going on here. Love you. You're the best audience ever. I want to, say, uh, I want to thank Gord uh, from Tottenham for reaching out, and hopefully he'll give us a call back and uh, talk to us when we have some time and have the ability to share um, whatever uh, experiences he'd like to talk about. Uh, if, in fact, we're talking about suicide prevention and what happens when we're dealing with someone who has thoughts or ideas around it, suicide prevention phone number around uh, town here is 416-408-4357, 416-408-4357, or you can text 456-459, 456-459, I believe, um, are the numbers that you can text out to to um, to get the support that you need. Start the con. We're going to finish off here. I want to. We got a little bit of time. We got, you got to start the conversation with the person. Talking about ways to prevent um, that kind of distress. Right? How, someone's in distress. You want to talk to them. They're talking to you about their situation. If a person doesn't come right and tell you, but you suspect that they might be suicidal, start the conversation. It's important to be directing your questioning. Like, are you feeling suicidal? Right? And for someone who's been experienced thoughts of suicide, it might be just scared to tell anybody, but if you open it up, it might be a little easier for them. Yeah, kind of. Or you might say, have you been thinking about self-harm? If the word suicide isn't something you like, although some experts, many experts say that, you know, you really need to go with that, with that, um, you know, with that line, that, that, that word, suicide. You need to let people know that that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about suicide. And the text message, by the way, the text number out to suicide prevention is 45645. Um, I gave you the wrong uh, text number. Very important. 416-408-4357. These are people that can help you and help someone else right now. Evaluate the danger, right? So after someone tells you they've been thinking about suicide, you need to evaluate how urgent the situation really is. Does the person have a plan? How detailed their plan? If they've attempted suicide before, if they, you know, and you got to ask these questions in a way that. So, what are you thinking about? Have you like figured out how to do it? And if so, you know, um, and you know, I think it's important that uh, maybe we talk about this. Like, maybe your plan doesn't make sense. You don't want to make it messy anymore. You know, like you can kind of soften the edge a little bit here, right? Have they attempted it? Have you done this before? You know, or have you, I know, you know, you might have. You might have mentioned something month or so ago about this, but, you know, have you, like, is this something you've tried before? Ask them what kind of supports they have in their life. What kind of people are around them? Who's with you right now? Is there anybody in the building? By the way, you got a therapist? You talking to anybody? Who should we call right now? Is there someone we could call right now that would help you feel better, that would make you feel a little better? If these conversations are going well, great. You keep this conversation going, and obviously you want to get them in front of an emergency room uh, uh, specialist. You want to get them into a crisis center as quickly as possible. You don't want to, you know, you don't want to walk away thinking, "Well, you know, that was a great conversation," but you know, maybe they're still thinking it. Um, you know, remember, all you're trying to do is intervene a little bit. Unless you're a trained therapist and you have skills and strategies to deal with this, and they're not your family or close friend. You need to get them to people who are, have the expertise. 
If someone's immediately in danger of taking a life, call call nine one one. Take them to to, to, to to the emergency room. Call the distress centers that we talked that we talked about. There's there's the four one six four eight four zero eight four three five seven number. Listen actively to why they want to die. Let them speak openly and honestly, and just remain calm. Yeah, I hear you. That sucks. Yeah, I hear you. Empathetic, right? Yeah, that's terrible. And I feel you, man. I feel your pain. Sad that you feel like it's worth, you know, leaving leaving Earth for and leaving us all behind. It makes me sad to think that that's how you feel. Listening to their reasons. Don't don't talk them out of it. That's not your job. Just let them know that choosing life seems to be so much more sensible. Certainly, from where you sit, as their close friend. Listen to what they have to say before you respond. Be careful. Don't talk to them over your eagerness to to don't talk over them because you're in a hurry to talk to them and get your message out. Always talk about long-term plans. Connect them with a counselor. Make sure they understand that there's family and friends that need them and want them and love them. Recognize that you can't do it all. Helping a friend or a loved one through a crisis of this kind of measure can be exhausting. Make sure you're using your own self-care and ensuring you have the supports in place for yourself so that your own mental health doesn't suffer. We can only do so much, my friends. Doing something is a great start. Listening is the greatest skill we need to bring to the table. That's what's most important. Our ability to listen, our ability to be empathetic, our ability to care and love unconditionally, those are the things we need to bring to the table. That helps anyone who's in a bad place feel like there's someone who cares. It's nine, It's 10.55. We're almost done here. Do you know where your family is, your children, your loved ones, your animals? It's almost 11 o'clock at night. You should probably know where they are, and if you don't, you need to call 911 if you're concerned about them. And especially if you're concerned that they might be sad or distressed and might be in a position to want to hurt themselves. Thank you so much for joining us again this evening. You're the greatest audience ever. Like my mother said, go out there and spread nice. Just say nice things. If you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. This is Yonabad, 640 Toronto.